this portion of scripture in which Jesus has been dealing uh, with his disciples over the manner of rewards. And they have been for a while talking about who is uh, the greatest in the kingdom and the least in the kingdom. Uh, you know, the things people go to war about. And Jesus decided, um, I'm going to put an end to that because I'm going to explain to you what the age to come is like. I'm going to explain to you what heaven is like and why it really will be heaven. And so here we have the words of Jesus. There was a rich man who turned away and missed the kingdom. And Jesus responds by saying to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. That is our hope. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? He's thinking like we all think. Yeah, well, what, what's the real estate prices in heaven? How can I get the big house? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now remember that phrase, exactly how it is said. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning and hired laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going about in a third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And then he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again in the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said, because no one's hired us. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Now call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also only received a denarius. 
And on receiving it, they, oh, I'm tired of hearing this. They grumbled. (laughs) They grumbled at the master of the house, that master, you know, that employed them. Saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal with us who have bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? What's the phrase? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. But that is the most beautiful thing uh, ever heard, it seems like. But then again, that could probably be said every Sunday, maybe. If you ever get tired of life and you ever are just sick of this world we live in, whether it be wars or the rat race or whatever it is you have to do tomorrow, the real question would be how could heaven really be heaven except a projection of our own self-fulfilling wishes into the sky for by and by? Well, Jesus is the Lord of glory He rose again from the grave in a real corporal body that is like yours and mine. And he is not so much interested in giving you a philosophy as more of remaking the whole world. That is the word he used, the new world, halogenesia. It's a word that's only used twice in all of scripture. One time here for the natural world and then one time in Titus to speak about our individual lives being Reborn. It could be translated, he will reborn the heaven. Reborn the heaven and the earth. The new world. So when he promises us heaven, he is promising something real. See, this rich man that Jesus just... uh, Dismissed. Rather, the man really dismissed Jesus. He's the one that went away sorrowful. The rich man came to him, and Jesus said clearly, if you will give away everything you have and come follow me, then you will have eternal life. And we're not told what the rich man did in the long term, but we know in the short term, he left. And he left sorrowful because he had great possessions. And so Jesus turned And addressed his disciples and with you and I this morning and said, as a general principle, what we saw in that transaction is the norm. Not just one rich man who happened to like a lot of money. We all like a lot of things. And he said, particularly, it's very difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard. Like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And the disciples were all shocked by this because their understanding of the blessings in this world were given by God. So if you were very blessed in this world, it was a good sign that you'll be blessed in heaven. So they're shocked and saying, how could this be? If anyone was going to be saved, it would be the rich man. How could anyone be saved? With man it is impossible. With God it is possible. And 
right on the heels of all this is Peter's pointed question. Where he would say, then, okay, if that's how that works, the first will be last and the last will be first, well, then that means that I'm kind of a big deal because I'm following you, Jesus. And he says, well, we who have left everything and are poor, what will we get? And Jesus is good on the promise. He says, you will do well. You'll live. You'll have a hundredfold. And this thing called eternal life is that deal. But right after that, Jesus goes into another parable and flips everything on its head. See, discipleship for us is not a classroom. See, we have adult education classes or you know, Sunday school classes for the children and they sit in their chairs or desks or here in this hall. That's not discipleship. It's part of discipleship, but that is not biblical discipleship. That's called information transfer. You're going to get information in your head. And that's good, and you need that. It's part of it. It's not discipleship. Disciples are not made at desks. They're made in the dust. See, there was a phrase that the old rabbis used. It was called being in the dust of that rabbi. The phrase is following the dust of that rabbi. So someone in the ancient world would have a particular teacher that they followed from point to point. And they would be, the students would be called under the dust of the rabbi. The phrase, it captures that the students would be so interested in what the rabbi is teaching that they would almost follow right after his feet that his dust would just be flicked up onto their clothes. They're right there following him. They're learning with him every step of the way. Not sitting at a desk, walking and learning, living and learning. See, that is what we're called to. When Jesus is calling us to discipleship, we cannot put it into our Prussian education system and think that means he wants you to sit down in a classroom and receive a B+. When he's calling you to discipleship, he's asking you to live with him, to walk with him. That is, all of your life has to be involved in this. And so Peter, of course, understands this perfectly and says that we left everything to follow you. We really, truly are what could be called your disciples, following so closely that the dust of Jesus is upon us. And shouldn't it be this way? What else would you have? Because the reality of us being poor, the reality of us truly having nothing, is that we all are turning to dust. But there is one rabbi who is rose from the grave, and so wouldn't it be good to follow him, to have his dust upon us? Because everything else in this world is no riches at all. Everything else we could hold on to is gone. The very way we came into this first world is the very way we have to come in to the new world. Naked. With nothing. That was his call to discipleship. Renounce everything you have. And then you can be my disciple. And if you are my disciple, that leads into the new world. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says it this way. We brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, 
With these will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then you have to think, why is Peter asking this question? We've left everything to follow you. He just saw the rich man fail. The rich man failed to enter the kingdom. The first will be last, and the last will be first. So Jesus explains that by the parable of the day laborers. You see in this parable, he takes Peter's question, and instead of just directly answering him and saying, yes, Peter, but I really don't like the way you phrase the question. I'm not really sure your motivations on asking such a question like that. Why are you so concerned about your status? Do you realize only shortly later, a few more disciples were asked if they can get the big seat in heaven? James and John. Why are they so interested in status? Isn't that in some way the problem with our whole world? Isn't that in some way the reason people go to war? Why we fight? Why we look at each other from the side of our eyes to see what the other person has? This is not what would make heaven heaven. But instead of saying all that, he just goes into this beautiful parable of day laborers. Those who are at the bottom of the barrel. These are the ones who don't have, you would say, a steady job with a pension. They need a job today, and they're not promised a job tomorrow. And if they don't have work today, they don't make money today. And if they don't make money today, they most likely will not be eating today. That's what day laborers were. In the ancient world, in cities, in towns, they hung around the marketplace, the place where all the commerce was, and they just stood there waiting for someone to pick them up. Just the way it was in any, uh, even depression, Great Depression here. Just standing there hoping someone could give them a job. And so these day laborers are there in the marketplace and a wealthy man, the master of a house, comes early in the morning. Right when the sun's coming up and finds them. And he hires some laborers to work in his vineyard. And he sets a very fair price of a denarius, which is nothing more than a day's work. That's what it means. It was one day's work of pay. And so from the very beginning of the day, he says, you will work a full day for me, you will get a full day's wage. And they say, good, thumbs up, let's get to work, because I'm hungry. These are day laborers, have nothing, they're nothing in our relationship to God. If he does not call us, if he does not employ us, we have nothing. And so here are these day laborers. But then we're told, after they agreed on that price, it might be harvest season, we don't know, the man who owns the vineyard needs to work and work fast. So it goes back to the market. Only later that morning, the third hour, which would be 9 a.m. And he finds a few more, says, whatever is right, I'll pay you. Whatever is right for this time of the day, get to work, and by the end, you'll have money, and you'll have food. He comes back again, the sixth hour, which is 12, at noon. He comes back again, the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. The day is almost over. 
And then the very last portion of the whole day, the 11th hour, because the work day typically would be over at 6. Roughly 6 to 6, or 7 to 6 was the work day. 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. And the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., one hour left, and he hires him. Now get to work. Get to work. But he says particularly, why at the 11th hour are you idle? They say, well, no one's hired us. And I love that answer. Remember, this whole parable is about what? That the first are last and the last are first. At the bottom of the economic barrel is the day laborers. The ones who don't have a job. And at the bottom of the bottom are the ones that can't even get picked. The ones that haven't even been able to be passed over. Because there's better non-employed people than these non-employed people. That whole day, no one picked them. There's only one hour left. And he comes by and says, I'll let you work in my field. No one else will hire you. I'll hire you. Beautiful. And then the evening comes. And it's perfect equality. He delegates out to his foreman and says, Now, I want you to pay him. But I want you to pay him a particular way. The very last ones, the ones that I hired at 5 p.m., I would like you to pay them first. So everyone gets to see it. And they worked one hour. And here the man pays them a whole denarius, a whole day's work of labor, and so forth to the sixth and the third. And then, of course, the one who is hired at 7 a.m., who's been under the hot sun all day, laboring with a sore, stiff back, thinks, surely I'll get paid more now because I've worked for my master a whole day. And this man only an hour. This is the gospel. No workers' unions. No revolts. No comparison. And he simply just says, aren't you getting what you deserve? Aren't you getting food to eat tonight so that you might live? Didn't I do you no wrong? Didn't I say I would give you this denarius? Do I not have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? This is our salvation. That our Lord Jesus Christ has called us and understands if we are not his slaves, we do not eat and we die. The master of this house is not a good businessman. You don't run a company paying people for a whole day of work when they work one hour. But he is a marvelous Savior. He is a marvelous Savior for those who are poor and will die. You see, 
That's all it's about. That's what heaven is. Competition is fine when you're having fun playing football. But when you compete about life, that's called war. And the Lord will put an end to all war. For this is all a matter of life and death. And when those are on the line, status and titles and position, they mean nothing. This is a gospel we need. It's a gospel our world needs. See, begrudging his generosity they did because they didn't understand grace. So Jesus says the last will be first and the first will be last. In the previous interchange about the rich man, chapter 19, verse 30, if you look at that verse closely, it says the first will be last and the last will be first. But then, after explaining the parable of the day laborers, in chapter 20, verse 16, he says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. That's beautiful. The first layer of it is, obviously dealing with the rich man, he is first. The first will be last, and the last will be first. He's the first in the world. He's the rich man. As far as the world is concerned, this present world, and then a second layer for how the world is to come, the new world. The first phrase refers to the first world, the world you and I live in, the world we know very well, and this is how it works. There are those who are first in the world. There's the one percenters, the ones who run the world, the one who have the high position and status. They are first, and it works its all way down a hierarchy to the very last. And so Jesus simply comes along and says, my kingdom, my gospel, those who will enter, they're not the first, the ones who have all the wealth. It's, it's literally impossible for them unless I change their hearts and get them in a position in where they can actually let go of all their wealth and not want to be first in this world. So therefore, the first in this world will be last. But the last in this world, the poor, the meek, the mild, the lowly, will be first. And that's great. So now we know the system. So now we can jostle for position. And now we can make heaven hell. To say, oh, if I could get in first, then I'll be last. And if I could be last, then I'll be first in the new world. And here we're back into the same problem of covetousness, of envy, of competition, of comparison, of pride. And so Jesus simply flips his flipping twice. And so when Peter asks, does that mean I'll be first? Jesus says, oh yes, I forgot, there's another part to that phrase. The last will be first and the first will be last. Which means it's all irrelevant now. It's all equal now. There is no more competition in the age to come. Because he says, the last will be first and the first will be last. So therefore, if Peter and his disciples were the first to enter the kingdom, 
In the new world, they're the first. They've been working at the field for years. What if this rich man on his deathbed decides to come to Christ? And he didn't labor for Christ his whole life. Then Peter can say, yes, I guess we'll have a corner in heaven for you. But I've been walking with Jesus faithfully. I was one of the first. And now my heaven is your hell. And so Jesus flips that around and says, no. I'll pay him a whole day's wage and you'll get the same. Because it's all about life. It's all about the glory of God. It's all about putting away our covetousness and pride. If covetousness remains in heaven, heaven no longer remains to be heaven. They thought they would receive more, therefore they grumbled. They positioned themselves to consider heaven to be a paycheck. They considered the very presence of Jesus Christ to be gratuitous as going to your employer. None of us like going to work. That's why the scriptures talk about heaven as being Sabbath, rest. Why would you want to earn it? Why would you want to compete for it? That is the very problem of our age, is that our whole system of economy is this, economizing scarce resource. That's what economics is, economizing scarce resource. Because why is it scarce? There's a lot out there. It's only scarce relative to the vacuous pit of our human idolatrous heart. We want more. And even the glorious goodness of everything God has made in this world cannot satisfy that chasm of darkness. And so we go to war to get more. And unless that darkness is put away, heaven would not be heaven. We will behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And we will be satisfied. There's been a few times in my life, only a few, and I mean like three or four, but by God's grace, and I, I've talked to many of you and other believers where they were share these stories of the experience of God's love. The experience of it. One time, I remember sitting at a subway. It's not usually where you always feel like you're going to be very a lovely person. But I was just sitting there eating a sandwich. The middle of doing something. It's the middle of the day. And I saw a man eating a sandwich there. And I don't know entirely what the Lord was doing with my heart. But I felt that I would have died for that man. Right there, on the spot. Like I just loved him. Like he was a person. Just eating a sandwich. And that's bizarre. But why? Like, I had a moment with the Lord in all of this. Saying, Lord, I want to love everybody this way. I just... Want the best for this guy I don't even know. Just looking at him over there. That's heaven. See, this, this deep love you have for no other reason than that you don't care about anything anymore. See, the most beautiful 
image or, or picture of a person in, in the scriptures. The hero that is not sung nearly as well. We talk about David and we talk about Moses and we talk about all these great figures. That man that gets a few verses in scripture, the son of Saul, Jonathan, in the kingdom of Israel, in 1 Samuel 18. I love Jonathan. He's first. He's the son of the king. The kingdom is his. He is to inherit. He didn't care. David was a ruler going to war and gaining in fame and power. And God's hand was evidently upon him. Everywhere he went, he won. He had great success. And people loved him. And Jonathan loved him. Jonathan made a covenant with him. In 1 Samuel 8, we're told that Jonathan loved David as his own son, as his own soul. And though Jonathan was first in the kingdom, he made himself last. And he gave David his robe and his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt, and said, now go. Go be great. And he went out and slew all the enemy. And they started to say that David killed his tens of thousands and Saul only his thousands. And so the king Saul was envious of it and said, David is more popular than me. He is getting more praise than me. He is more successful than me. He could take the kingdom from me. Yet Jonathan, who was first in the kingdom, the son of the king, to inherit it all, gave him everything he needed to win the wars and said, you will be king someday. Remember me. The freedom of knowing Christ, that he gave you everything, It's hard to preach that without understanding it. But it goes back to what we said at the beginning in closing. Discipleship is not a classroom. Say, how can I understand that Jesus Christ has emptied himself? That he who was first, preeminent, the son of God's glory, became last and lowly, for me, I want to love as God has called me to love. I want to be full of this selflessness that I don't care about anything else anymore except loving God with all my heart and wanting everyone else around me to do well. How to appropriate that? How to not just sing it and know it, but realize that if he has given you everything, then you can be free to not want anything, not compete with anyone. It has to be because of the way we live. Martin Luther says this, this is theology. I did not learn my theology all at once, he said, but I had to search deeper for it, where my temptations took me, not understanding reading or speculation, but living, nay, dying and being damned. That made me a theologian. It's not until we understand that being a disciple is practical. It's not enough to know that Jesus 
did this thing on the cross for you, and that's called the gospel. It has to be appropriated. It has to be taken in so that you can see, oh, now when he calls me to discipleship, and I start to internalize the thought of giving up something for Christ, and I feel the pull, the awkwardness, the difficulty of letting go of something. Oh my. He emptied himself for me, you see. But that's only appropriated. That's only understood when you get out of your seat, walk into the world, and try to do what he's asked you to do. Then you really learn what he's telling you. That he emptied himself for you. He truly became poor. That if you even would threaten yourself with poverty, even intellectually for five minutes, you've entered into truly understanding the gospel. Because whatever is true of how you would understand you giving away and emptying yourself for the betterment of another and what that costs you and how that feels, not just as words on a page, but numbers in your checkbook, well, that's a different feeling. And then you get the gospel because that was the love of Christ for you, that he really emptied himself, really emptied himself for you, loved you to his own detriment. The only way we go into the new world is the same way we came into the first world, naked. That's why Jesus says, you must be born again. That everything we have is given to Christ in his kingdom. The freedom to love. If your success is my pleasure, if your happiness is my joy, if your progress is my reward, everything else in this world is wonderful. The second I stop desiring, the second I pray, Lord, make my desire your desire, I'm free. See, if you do better than me, and I enjoy that, don't I win? Isn't your joy now my joy? Isn't your success my heaven? That is heaven. We no longer look at our paychecks and actually are loving one another to take joy in each other's joy. The only way to do that is to let go of everything. Dear Father God, I pray that we would bring this heaven to earth. Lord, I pray as a church we could do this. Lord, please work in our hearts to appropriate this truth as true disciples, not just students. Father, I pray that you would work in us a type of love in which we would have greater joy in one another's success, greater joy and happiness of one another and the progress of one another than even for our own selves. That we would live in love, that we would live for the good of your kingdom, that we would be happy to receive anything from your hand. Dear Father God, please make this a reality for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.